Thank you, gentlemen. It's a, I enjoy the fact that when coming to church at this congregation, you can hear men sing. And I like that. And so it is a, it is a blessing. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank and praise you for the heart of Moses. Moses who yearned not just that the elders would have the spirit upon them, but that all of God's people, all of God's people would have the spirit upon them. Moses had faith and hope in you and your graciousness that you would pour your spirit upon all people. Well, give us a heart, that same kind of heart that looks for the whole world to be saved and the whole world to call upon the name of Christ, the whole, that the whole world will receive the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost, for those who might not know, literally means 50th day. For seven weeks after Passover, the Israelites would harvest grain. On the 50th day, the Feast of Pentecost would begin. During this festival, farmers would offer to the Lord the first fruits of the harvest. Now, because this was one of the three major festivals in Israel, Jews from all over the ancient world attended this festival. In fact, in verses 9 through 11, Jane read to us a list of some of the countries that were represented Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. In other words, the whole world had gathered in Jerusalem, people from north, south, east, and west. They had all gathered on that day of Pentecost to offer to God their first fruits. Now, the joke on this day, or the great reversal, is that, that God had a different plan in mind. Instead of receiving their first fruits, God made them the first fruits of his harvest. On that Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit to call, gather, and enlighten them with the gospel. 3,000 men, not to mention women and children, were baptized on that day. That was the beginning of the church. And yet one person said, you know, it's not so much that we celebrate the church on this day. We celebrate this is the world's gift. It's not the gift to the church. It's the, the world's gift because the church began so that it go to the ends of the earth, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the question for us on this Pentecost day is the same question asked by the crowd on the first Pentecost day. What does this mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples? What does it mean that they were declaring the mighty deeds of God in various tongues? What does it mean that the crowd, some of the crowd was amazed and others mocked the disciples? Even more, what does it mean for us today? As we live in a time, in a place where we are closing more churches than opening them. What does Pentecost mean? What does this mean? Thankfully, we don't have to guess, because Peter gives us the answer. In fact, in our reading from Romans, he tells us what it means. And, and Peter begins in his reading um, from Acts by telling us what this day is not. In verses 14 and 15, Peter says, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain 
this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Obviously, Peter had never been to a college football game before. <laughs> it's important that, that but it's, what's important in Paul's statement is that he's trying to explain to them that, that they're not drinking is important because it means that they're not under some chemical influence. It's not because of some man manipulation that these men are going out saying what they do. In fact, the more drunk you get, probably the less you can speak. <laughs> I mean, and so this is not because of drinking. And this goes back even to John the Baptist, his ministry. John never drank. And the reason was so that no one could say, this guy's a, a drunk and that's why he's doing what he's doing. This isn't some man-manipulated, ecstatic state of being. This isn't, they're not under some chemical influence. And so when Peter's saying this, he's saying, this isn't the work of man, why this is all happening. Just like John the Baptist's work wasn't the work of man, it's really the work of God. God's hand is at work on this day of Pentecost. God's hand is at work in the ministry of John the Baptist. It's not alcohol that was doing it. It was God's hand that was doing this. I think this is important for all of us. And it's important because we need to be reminded of this truth that, that the church's success and the work of God is not the, the work of man's work or man's manipulation. It, it's, it's God who has to work. It's God who has to, to build. It's God who has to create his church. And we need to be reminded of this because I think we take ourselves way too seriously. We think of ourselves as, as way too important. We come up with solutions to solve the problems of the church. We think, you know, if we have a traditional worship service, it's all going to be right. Or if we have a contemporary service, then the church is going to be fine. Or if we have a church program like a blaze, then a million people can know Jesus. Whatever that means, you know, as a program. Or we say, let's have more synod assembly gatherings and district gatherings. That will be the answer. I'm not going to say anything more of that. <laughs> By saying that these men are not drunk, Peter's making an important statement. This is not the work of man. This is not man's manipulation. This is the work of God. It's God's work on this day. It's God's moving on this day. Peter's reminding us that we don't need more programs. We need more God. And so we should pray, come, Holy Spirit. Come. Now, there's a funny thing when God is working. And when God's working, there's always law and there's always gospel. And we see this in the following verses. In verse 16, Peter goes on to say, 14, 15, these men aren't drunk. And then verse 16, he goes on to say, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I want to stop there for a second. How many of you remember the prophet Joel? How many of you read the book of Joel? You don't have to raise your hands, but, but if you have, you remember that Joel was a prophet in Israel during the time of a, a great, a great um, of plague. In fact, the way he describes the plague is this way. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. 
what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Or in verse chapter 2, verse 3, he says, The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but after them the locusts, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. You think the stock market is bad? This was worse. They had nothing. Israel was completely devastated. And they knew why. They knew that they had abandoned God. They knew that they had left God. They knew that they were, um, they were apart from God. And so what did they need to do? They needed to make things right with God. And so what does Israel do when they're, they know they've sinned against God? What does Israel do to usually cover up their sin? What do they do to try to appease God? They offer some sacrifice. If we can offer enough grain offering, enough wine offering, then truly God will be appeased. But what's the problem? The locusts ate it all. There's no grain left. There's no wine left. There's nothing they can do to offer and to appease God. And so they're stuck. What can we do? We have nothing to sacrifice to God. I imagine the crowd on that day hearing the Pentecost sermon fell into the same place. Because later in this, this in Peter's sermon, Peter reminds the crowd that they're guilty of killing Jesus. He says to them, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Then he goes on to say, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Could you imagine what the crowd must have thought? You're guilty of killing the Christ. <laughs> I, I, what do you do at that point? Is there enough grain to offer? Is there enough wine to pour out? Is there enough bulls to shed when you are guilty of killing the Christ? <clears throat> what can they do? I think many of us get in that same position and ask the same question. We know what God wants for us, and, and we know that we're his people. But we don't always do what he does. And thank God we don't always think about that. I mean, if we did, we would be miserable wretches. But there are moments when we really get convicted of our sin, or get convicted of our doubt, or get convicted of, of just how bad we've made a mess of things. And it's those moments, and they don't happen often. And again, thank God for that, because we would be the worst of people if we were always revealed. I think God shields us from ourselves often in a gracious way. But there are moments when we see our sin. And we ask, are we really Christians? How can God really forgive me? I mean, I know what God's done for me. I've, I've tasted that living water. And yet, I doubt it so much. 
or and yet I, I do what I know he doesn't want me to do. And I like doing that. What can we do? I'm guilty. And so we ask that question as well. I have nothing to offer to you, God. Before you, I'm in trouble. I imagine Peter knew this as well, of all people. Peter knew what it was like to stand guilty before his Lord. Peter, who had denied Christ three times, had nothing to offer to Christ to make that right. Peter could offer nothing. Peter could do nothing. But that's the point. That's how God exactly wants it. God does not want us to stand before him and say, you must appease me. God wants us to stand before him so he can lavish his grace upon us. God wants us to stand before him knowing that there's nothing in our hands that we can bring so that God in his graciousness can bestow everything that we need. The reason Joel, the good news of that, of that book, is that they had nothing to offer to God, and so God had to offer them everything. He had to pour the Spirit upon them. And there's nothing that, that Peter could bring, but God would give him fish, give him forgiveness. And there's nothing that those people who were guilty of killing Jesus could do except receive baptism. And there's nothing that we can do to appease God except receive his love and mercy to let him bestow his grace upon us. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. This is what Peter goes on to say. Because in the very next verse he says, he said, again, this is, not drunken, this is not drunkenness. This is what Joel was speaking about. And then he says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. Now, these words are so important. Pour. In the Hebrew term, this means implying a full gift. When God pours, he doesn't give little drops. He takes the cup and he turns it upside down. It's, it's the heavens opening, the, the floodgates pouring in. And so he's saying on this last day, God is, is pouring. And what is he pouring out? He's pouring out his grace and mercy, not his wrath. He's pouring out grace and mercy. In fact, this is what Titus 3 says when it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Or Romans 5.5 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God pours, he lavishes, he richly bestows his grace upon us. And I love this wordplay, and I just, I have to think about this wordplay for a second. Here, God, they're saying, are you drunk with wine? No, they're not drunk with wine. They haven't been pouring too much wine. No, God has been pouring, not the old wine, but this new wine, the new spirit. 
In fact, I told Tim right before the service, I almost wanted to call this, I wanted to name the sermon, Poor Bartender Bore. Not because of it's our own pouring, but it's because God is opening up heaven and he's pouring the new wine into new wineskins. And it's, it's filling up. Because that's what God does. It's, it's 180 proof grace. That's what he's pouring out. Or 200%. That's it. 200 proof grace. That's what he's pouring out. It's his goodness and his mercy. And he's flowing it upon the people. And that's what Peter's saying. That's what this is. It's God loving. He's not pouring wrath, but he's pouring his grace upon us. And it doesn't just come upon the elders or just come upon a few that it comes and then leaves. No, it says he pours it on all people, male and female, old and young, Jew and Greek, slave and free. I mean, this is what he does. He pours it out on all people. In fact, this is the very event that causes the apostle Paul to write these words about why Gentiles and Greek should be together. And he writes in Ephesians 3, he says... When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, and that's the promised Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, when God poured the Spirit, it's not just on the Jews, it's not just on the elect of the Jews, it's upon the whole world. Poor bartender, poor. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's lavishing it. And that's what Moses wanted in our first reading. Here Joshua goes, oh, no. I want, how can these people be prophesying? Oh, Moses, you've got to stop this. These are 70 people who are filled with the Spirit. Stop it, Moses. I think Joshua was the first bishop. <laughs> yeah. Don't let it get out of hand. <laughs> and Moses says, oh, if, not, if, if only all people, all people would have the spirit. I want them all to have it, Moses was saying. Not just the ordained. I want all people to have the Spirit. And so he's longing for that day of Pentecost without even knowing about the day of Pentecost because God made his heart long for that because that's God's heart as well. And then the dreams, visions, and prophecy, what does this mean? Well, these are all the gifts of the Spirit. And so what, Mo, what Joel is saying and what Peter's saying is God doesn't just pour out a little bit of his Spirit. He pours out the full gamut. They're getting it all. They're getting it to the ends of the earth, and they're getting the full everything. Not just parts, but everything is what I'm pouring out. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, he explains, what are all other gifts together compared to this gift? That the Spirit of God himself, the eternal God, comes down into our hearts, yea, into our bodies, and dwells in us, rules, guides, leads us. Thus now, as concerning the passage of the prophet, prophesying visions, dreams, are all one thing. Namely, the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. This is the full pouring of God with all the gifts so that we would know and believe, and as, as, as Peter says in 21, so that all people who call on the name of the Lord will be 
saved. And so God's pouring, pouring, pouring. And so what does that mean for us this day? What does this mean? As churches are shutting down, what does this mean? Well, it means that we can't fix it through programs, but we can pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, pour. Oh, oh, God, pour it. Second, like the people of Israel and like Peter, all of us stand guilty before the Lord. We have nothing to offer to God. And that's exactly how God likes it. God instead comes to us. God makes us his harvest, the first fruits. God pours out his spirit upon us, not wrath, but spirit. In the waters of baptism, God richly poured the spirit upon you, making you heirs of eternal life, as Titus tells us. Third, Pentecost is really about God pouring his spirit and his word to create faith in, in dead hearts and to illumine dark minds. And this happens all the time. Pentecost happened a few weeks ago as Michael was baptized. Pentecost happened in the life of our young people as they're coming to faith and, and they're being used and going off to the ends of the earth. Pentecost happened in Marv Combs' life as he was an inactive church member. And the preaching of the gospel grabbed him and did a work on him. And now Marv is serving the church in, in, in La Mirada. No, I say that. It's La Mirada. Pentecost happens in Sunday school when the Holy Spirit causes one child to understand with faith. Pentecost happens in confirmation as these kids, I'm telling you, last week a kid realizes he's hearing these words of promise that that means I'm really saved? That's, of course, the work of the Spirit doing that. Pentecost happens all the time. Whenever the gospel, when the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to call us and gather us and lighten us in faith and to sustain our faith, the very fact that you still believe Pentecost is happening. And so this has huge implications for us. Pentecost means that we should never give up on our loved ones. A violent wind can come upon them at any time and give them faith. Pentecost means that we should not give up on our neighbors. And you know my neighbors. I say enough about them. <laughs> the fire of God's word can illumine dark minds and warm the coldest of hearts. Pentecost means we should not give up on world missions. God has provided the necessary tongues to declare his wondrous deeds. Pentecost also means, finally, that God loves you. Instead of pouring wrath upon you and me, God graciously, abundantly, 200 proof, pours out his grace, his spirit upon you. Whether you believe it right now or not, or you doubt it, he still pours upon you. God loves you. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.